Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. As COVID numbers increase, so does the demand for testing. Top concerns for Canadians ahead of Wednesday's throne speech and a Canadian comedy cleans up at the Emmys. All of that coming up. Let's get to it. The story of the day is going to be enforcement, and it is going to be a lot of talk throughout the day today about how is it that we arrest the startling climb in cases. You heard the numbers in the newscast, 425 new cases. Here's a couple of other numbers, though, that really stick out from all the stats that were released this morning. Our testing numbers continue to be quite high, 31,700. That's not a bad number. Now, keep in mind that the Ford government has said it plans to amp that up, get to 50,000. And we're going to check in on some of the lineups going on around the province. We're going to go to Michael Garrett Hospital in just a couple of moments. But before we get there, I also want to point out this. The pending number on tests, 32,400. There are more tests pending than were processed in the last 24 hours. That is a big problem. Because even if we get the testing numbers up higher, just because we can conduct a test doesn't mean that we can process it fast enough to be effective. It's not going to be any good if we can eliminate the lineups. That'll be a good news. Eliminate the lineups, but still can't process the test fast enough. You can't say to people, oh, thanks for coming to your test. Go home. We'll get back to you in nine days. That's not acceptable. That's not going to get it done because people are not going to curb their behaviors. They're not going to self-isolate for that long, just wondering whether or not they've had a positive test or not. As we break down those numbers uh, by Public Health Unit, 175 cases in Toronto, 84 in Peel, 60 in Ottawa, Quebec, 586 new cases. That's the biggest one-day jump in that province in four months. All of it adds up to this. Call the cops and cancel your plans. Because the enforcement of the rules and how we will do that, that will be addressed today at 2 p.m. when Matthew Pegg, who is the uh, fire chief here in Toronto, will address bylaw enforcement and how it is it that Toronto is actually going to enforce these new gathering rules that, as you know, were expanded to right across the province over the course of the weekend. What have you changed? Have you canceled anything? My family? Thanksgiving? Canceled. It's done. That turkey is done. Forget it. We were planning to get together as a family. My sister's place, travel to a different part of the province, get together. It's a larger family gathering. Not a huge This is the sort of thing that we thought back in August where you sort of made the plans. You know, back in August, the numbers were dipping below 100. They were down below 50 at one point. Well, this this is totally doable. But now, with the numbers where they are now, 425 cases, you're going to have to give your head a shake. You're going to have to give your head a shake about whether or not you're going to get together. You're going to have to really think about it. Here is John Torrey this morning saying that... Even though there hasn't been robust enforcement yet, just the expansion of these new rules across the province over the course of the weekend, that that has caused people to do exactly what I'm talking about in my family, which is cancel things. Here's John Tory. There were weddings that were canceled or or, or curtailed, cut down. 
there were people who were going to have, uh, you know, go attend parties for people's birthday and, and they didn't go. And, and I think this is what we're trying to do. We're not trying to spoil fun. We're not trying to make people's lives miserable. We're certainly not trying to spoil weddings, but we are trying to say it cannot be business as usual. That is John Tory. It cannot be business as usual. As the numbers go up, of course, you know what's happening. People are saying, well, I think maybe I better get a test for any number of reasons, especially back to school. We've got, you know, we've got a number of cases going up again in Ontario schools. And, you know, your kids are getting sick. You got to take them. You got to get a test. So now we have people lining up for hours, as you know, at testing centers. And the Minister of Health was pressed on this this morning. How is it that the provincial government doesn't have a plan in place for it? Here's the Minister of Health. The plan is working. We are getting to the testing that we need, and we are shortening the lineups. That is Christine Elliott. We're expecting perhaps even as early as today more information about pharmacies being able to expand testing. But that isn't getting the testing done fast enough and it's not getting the capacity up fast enough let's check in at michael garen hospital this morning that is where cat ward who is our global re reporter on the scene is this morning Catherine, how are you well i'm good i'm doing better than the people in line that's for sure how big is the lineup Alan, this line, it stretches right back from where it starts around the block, if you can imagine. And if you know Michael Guerin, you know that Coxwell is right on the other side of where the testing center starts. And it goes right past the hospital to the other intersection that's right there. So it's, it's huge. It's big. Have you managed to talk to anybody in line? Yeah, we were here early this morning, actually, when the first family arrived. It was a mother and her son, and she just said, you know, I've been trying to get a test for several days. It's not easy. I can't wait here with a small child for hours and hours on end. So she made the decision to wait, you know, before the testing center even opened. And people I just spoke with a matter of minutes ago, they were telling me that some people from the assessment center are coming out saying, you know, you guys should consider going elsewhere. Going to a different place, finding some other testing center other than Michael Guerin. Exactly, because like I said, the line here, it's huge, it's long, and people are, are waiting for hours. Is, is there anger in the lineup? People saying, you know, why is it that we are not better prepared for this? You can definitely sense that. I think people are trying to, you know, bite the bullet, just sort of, you know, sit here and do what they can just to pass the time. But you, you can tell people are frustrated. Uh, one mom I spoke with said, you know, she just wants her child has a runny nose and she just wants to get her kid back into class. But she can't send her back until she has that all clear and has a confirmed negative result. So parents are just sort of caught in this impossible situation. You know, families caught waiting for hours. You know, young kids here clearly not up for a six-hour wait <laughs> sometimes. And you can feel the, the frustration growing. Yeah, and you got young ones too, Kat. I mean, you, you, you know what that must be like. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, e even with my son who's in grade seven, I can't imagine standing in line with him for six hours, let alone a toddler. Exactly. And, and, you know, parents are doing their best, Alan. They're really trying to, to use the system. People I spoke with say, you know, they even tried to call to book an appointment to try and, you know, cut down that wait time, especially parents with young kids. And one mom uh, told me this morning that she was on hold for 
49 minutes. She knew the exact minute number, Ellen. And then her call got disconnected and she couldn't get through it. Can you imagine? It, it just must be so hard for these people just trying to do the right thing and trying not to increase exposure or put anybody else at risk. You know, the province continues to province that the uh, promise, pardon me, that the ramp up is coming. And that, you know, as Doug Ford has said, over the cavalry, here comes the private sector. They're not here yet. And to the people in those lineups going to a different center or waiting to another day when another, you know, testing availability might get better, I don't know, later this week. That's, it, that's just not an option for these people? You know, I, I think people are wanting whatever they can do just to get through. You know, people are just trying to survive all of this and, and work with these new rules and work within these new structures and uh, mandates that schools and workplaces have. I know over the weekend, uh, the Premier did allude to the fact that pharmacies are going to be a possibility going forward for testing asymptomatic people, so people who do not show any symptoms. And I think that will be a good thing if that happens, where people who, you know, have symptoms can come to these testing assessment centers and people who just need that reassurance that, you know, this is just a runny nose or a cold can go elsewhere. But again, we don't know the details about that, but we have been hearing about that for a few days now. Yeah, I'm no kidding. And to those people in line, that is cold comfort indeed. Catherine Ward is our global news reporter at Michael Guerin Hospital this morning. Catherine, thank you so much. Anytime, Alan. Thank you. Well, as we, of course, in the uh, noon hour here, we're, you know, we just take a look at what's happening with those numbers. We take a look at what's happening in those testings. And I just, I have to say, the one thing we need more than anything else is we need the schools to remain open. I mean, that's just the bottom line. I mean, if you are worried about economics, about getting people back to work, about jobs, if that is your number one concern as we confront this pandemic is how will we get people back to work? The only way we get people back to work is the kids are in school and the kids need to stay in school. And if you look at those numbers and the kind of growth that we have seen in the last week, I think you're going to have to ask yourself a tough question. You think those kids are going to be in school by Thanksgiving? We keep going this way? At what point will the medical officers start saying, you know what, there is unchecked community spread. And as a result, in class can no longer happen. That's a possibility. And we we just must do everything, everything in our power to make sure it does not come to that. A lot of eyes on what's coming on Wednesday, namely the throne speech from the federal liberals Uh, The throne speech, it will be delivered in a physically distant way. The Governor General, Julie Payette, will be as distant as always. I'm hoping for just a full diva wig out. That'd be, that'd be good. If she just went, just goes off, maybe she brings some of her cats with her from Rideau. Let's give this a shot. Let's give it a shot. That would be more entertaining than probably what's actually going to happen. And in fact, watching to see whether or not Julie Payette has just a kind of a meltdown moment is probably the only really good reason to watch the throne speech. 
because if you know anything about speeches from the throne, they are long on aspiration and very, very short on any kind of detail. So we're going to get a lot of, we're going to do all the good things for the country from the liberals and very, very little how we actually will accomplish it. But nevertheless, what is it that Canadians want the federal liberals to at least signal is the top priority for the government? Well, Ipsos went to Canadians and asked, and pollster extraordinaire Daryl Bricker joins me on the line. Hey, Daryl. Hey, Alan. How are you doing? I'm good. What are the odds, do you think, of Julie Payette just losing it during the speech? Well, you know, another survey we recently just did, uh, the level of approval the Canadians have for the Governor General is the lowest I've ever seen. I mean, it's like 50% support the current Governor General, which is really, really um, shockingly low. Uh, so, uh, hey, maybe the, it could improve her, it could improve her numbers. I mean, <laughs> Nowhere to uh, go but up! We'll call, it the Carter, we'll call it the Carter twist. Carter turn. <laughs> All right, let's get into our top five. Top five things that Canadians actually want to see addressed in the speech from the throne. Help us fight the pandemic with health measures. Get us back to work. Don't go too crazy on the deficit. Maybe you want to take a look at what a universal basic income might look like for Canadians. But by the way, we don't want to pay any more taxes. And as I read through that top five list, and as you line them out there, those top five in order, 33% for fight the pandemic, 26 for get back to work, 18% reduce the deficit, 17% basic income, 17% reduce taxes. Uh, some of those are mutually exclusive. I don't know if you can reduce taxes and reduce the budget and get basic income and get everybody back to work at the same time. Right, and it also uh, underscores why the government, which prorogued the House a month ago and announced that it was going to use this once-in-a-generation opportunity to build Canada back better, why they certainly reduced their aspirations. Uh, you know, for example, building a, a, a green recovery um, is pretty far down the list, or supporting a green recovery is, is pretty far down the list, and that's because people in the, are in the midst of fighting a pandemic. When they're thinking about tomorrow, they're literally thinking about Tuesday. They're not thinking about the next generation or 10 years from now or any big aspirational things. They need help now, and they want their government to uh, to, to bring that help with them, to them in fairly short order and in a significant way. You know, it's funny, Daryl, how things quickly, quickly turn, because two, three weeks ago, if we were having this conversation, we would be talking much more about the federal liberals and the plan that the federal liberals might have to try and reshape the economy as we rebound from COVID-19. But with the numbers like we've seen even here in Ontario today, the attention, like you say, is on the here and the now, and how will we fight a second wave? Well, the interesting thing on that is even though the punditry and the media and the political types, particularly the more progressive political types, were talking in that way at the time, they were talking right past past the public. Because if you take a look at how the public's feeling about the coming out of a pandemic, but also combined with anticipating a second wave, they weren't coming out in the same way that other people were thinking we were coming out. In fact, they're still fairly stuck in where we were in March, April and May. In terms of their attitude, 75% of us believe that we're going to experience a second wave. They're now seeing the proof of that, which has even made them pull their heads back further into the shell. 
Interesting, though, when we start seeing the second wave, well, you know, like you say, the high percentage of us believe it is coming if it's not already here. We've had officialdom saying, you know, it's coming if it's not already here. What will be interesting is whether or not we see a dip in approval for politicians like Doug Ford as people line up for hours and hours to get tested and there's complaints that we're not prepared for a second wave. Yeah, there are some governments that are experiencing historic highs, even big turnarounds, because of uh, how they managed the uh, um, the, uh, the pandemic in, in its early stages. By the way, the federal government's not one of them. Uh, they're you know in terms of vote, they're pretty much tied with uh, with the conservatives right now, the liberals. Uh, but there are governments, uh, you know, as you said, who've have experienced really uh, historic highs in terms of uh, in terms of public approval. As we move into the second wave, are, is the public feeling the same way? That we won't know for a bit. As we talk about political divide, and obviously it's a much different situation in this country than south of the border, but there is still a significant divide. And interesting, as I read through the stats from this most recent survey you did about the throne speech, liberal voters' priorities are health measures at 43%. Conservative voters' priorities are getting back to work at 35%. Talk to me about that that difference. Yeah, I, because the conservative voters tend to be more animated by economic issues, mainly because they're private sector workers to a large degree, whereas liberal voters are more likely to work in the public sector. Uh, and I really uh, think that the way to talk about Canadian politics now is not necessarily to talk about liberal, conservative, and NDP supporters or even block supporters. Well, blocks would be a bit different, but it's really more progressive supporters and conservative supporters. And the progressive people have a more nuanced list that actually match more the rhetoric that uh, what the prime minister had uh, when, when the House was prorogued. Conservative voters are really on the other side of that. Uh, but what's happened, I would say, over the space of the last four weeks is that the liberal voters have come a little closer to the conservative voters, which is why the aspirational talk out of Ottawa started to decline. Yeah, by, by that, you mean a traditional progressive voter is now looking at that deficit number with a little bit more concern? Yeah, they're looking at the deficit number with a little more concern, but they're also more focused on the emergency aspects of what we're dealing with. So emergency pandemic care, right? Health measures to fight the pandemic, getting Canadians back to work. Um, the, uh, um, the, um, the conservatives are more focused on the deficit part of that, but that kind of economic engagement, emergency short-term relief type of way of looking at this is, uh, is, is, is aligned for both groups of voters. Uh, a percentage of the number of Canadians that you believe will be disappointed by what they actually hear in terms of detail in the speech from the throne on Wednesday? Uh, possibly an awful lot. Because I'm going 100%. I'm going 100%. Yeah, yeah, well, but see, that, but this is the difference, right? I mean, the, the problem was uh, the reason the, the, the government prorogued the House was because they were coming back with a a way to change the channel and get off of the Wee scandal and to get, you know, reinvigorate their, their relationship with Canadians. So a damp squib of a throne speech really doesn't do that for them. Daryl, it's going to be a fun week, one way or the other. We just cross our fingers and hope for that pay at uh, wig out. That'd be the best. <laughs> Daryl Bricker from Ipsos. Always great to have you on, Daryl. Thanks, Alan. Let's talk about the 2020 Emmy Awards. Went last night in Schitt's Creek, the Canadian comedy. Took every comedy trophy, including lead actress, lead actor, best supporting actor and actress, best writing and best direction and best 
overall comedy. Here is Catherine O'Hara, the winner for Best Actress in a Comedy Series. I will forever be grateful to Eugene and Daniel Levy for the opportunity, for bestowing upon me the opportunity to play a woman of a certain age, my age, um, who gets to be, who gets to fully be her ridiculous self. That is Catherine O'Hara the winner for Best Actress in a Comedy Series in the 2020 Emmy Awards. This was the first acting Emmy for Eugene Levy, uh, co-creator of the program. He'd previously won two as a writer for SCTV. Here's Eugene Levy last night. Uh, I guess it's kind of ironical that the straightest role I've ever played lands me an Emmy for a comedy performance. Um, So now I seriously have to question just what I've been doing for the past 50 years. That is Eugene Levy, or Bobby Bittman, if you would like. Daniel Levy used his speech to urge people to vote. It's the only way we will have love and acceptance out there. Here's Daniel Levy. I would not be here if it weren't for the six-year master class that was led by two brilliant comedic minds that I had had the good fortune of working with for the past six seasons, my dad, Eugene Levy, and the magnificent Catherine O'Hara. That is Daniel Levy in his acceptance speech last night as Schitt's Creek cleans up at the 2020 Emmy Awards. What does it mean for Canadian content? What does it mean for series shot in Toronto? To talk more about that, I am pleased to welcome to the program from globalnews.ca, Chris Jenselowitz. Hey, Chris. What's going on, Alan? Well, not too much. Did you stay up and watch the 2020 Emmy Awards? I did. And, you know, I've watched these things for the last, oh, at least 10 years, uh, if not more. And, you know, it's uh, it was really something. Uh, at first, I was... I don't know. I was shocked a little bit because Canada's never really mentioned unless it's like an aside or a joke. Um, and in this case, it was the first hour plus that was nothing but Shit's Creek. It was literally nothing but. No other show got an award. They barely mentioned anything else. There was a really uncomfortable segment with Jennifer Aniston, but we won't get into that. Um, but yeah, so, you know, overall, I thought it was so great to see. I actually predicted it, um, the the full sweep, but I didn't anticipate it being presented this way. It was just so nuts. It was everything. You know, what's interesting is, as I was doing some reading, you know, various news organizations and news outlets, uh, the Canadian headlines, of course, across the board, our Shits Creek cleans up for the first hour. If you look at American websites this morning, generally what they focus on is, you know, this was a coming out for HBO and HBO dominated over Netflix. And there's not even a mention of Shits Creek. <laughs> Initially, so when they so because it was the first hour of the show, a bunch of content came out uh, pretty much immediately after saying, "Oh, Shit's Creek, this Shit's Creek, that." And then as the night went on, uh, yeah, like you said, they it was almost like a bitterness that uh, the Canadians were winning everything. It was actually quite humorous, um, but that's too bad. That's too bad that they're not focusing on the the win because such a big deal, you know. And this for a show that's already wrapped up. Yeah. So often what happens is, you know this, um, when a show's in its last season, it often gets a ton of accolades, um, gets piled on. In this case, it was a serious pile-on. But what was interesting was was also The Good Places. Which, the Good Places is actually a pretty uh, beloved show across the board. And it was its final season. It's done. And it didn't win anything last night. So there's a little bit of uproar in the comedy community about that. 
Um, but it, it's weird that there's a sort of anti-Canadian sentiment, <laughs> or at least I'm not wanting to celebrate with us. Uh, uh, what what does it really mean, though, for you know, in terms of Canadian production? Yeah, sure, this is here's a success, um, but will that translate into more Canadian productions being picked up? Do you think? You know, I really hope so. I think historically, if we look back, um, that's not a very common thing. Uh, a lot of the really successful Canadian productions are actually co-productions. Uh, so that's what makes this uh, kind of an anomaly in that, it, you know, is shot in Canada for the most part, shot, or, or sorry, created by people, crew is, is are Canadian. Um, so, you know, that, that in itself makes this uh, pretty much an anomaly. But I'm hoping that, you know, that it, that it kind of showcases what Canada has to offer. And then hopefully in the future, uh, we won't be kind of cut out of the conversation and that maybe some of our shows can find more uh, international success without the help of another country, say like the UK or the US, uh, bolstering that money. Hopefully it comes straight from us. I think it's possible. I think we have the talent. Uh, as you can tell with something like Schitt's Creek, that sort of comedy, that sort of humor is really distinctly Canadian. And I don't think it's able to be replicated in other countries. So we have a special talent uh, that people should be clamoring for. That's my unbiased uh, Canadian opinion. <laughs> um, you, you know, as, as, as a private broadcaster for close to 30 years now, I have spent uh, a fair bit of time railing about the CBC uh, but here we have, I think, something that I cannot complain about at all. Here's the CBC program that has, has done so well uh, and, and is fulfilling a mandate, I think, that the CBC should be taking up. It should not be competing with my supper hour news local newscast. Absolutely I think not. Let, let's let's take that let's take that money and just make another Shits Creek season instead. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that fans would love that. Uh, I know we're not going to see it. Um, but one an interesting thing is that based on Schitt's Creek's success, the cast is under incredible demand to be on new shows, right? So I know for a fact that Catherine O'Hara was one of the highest in demand for this recent pilot season in L.A. She was like the number one request. So we can, you know, we'll just be, it's going to be a matter of months before we see another show with Catherine O'Hara. Dan Levy, 100%, will be working for the next several decades of his life, so he's, he's pretty lined up. And there's always something for Eugene, right? So I really do think that uh, this is definitely not the last we're going to see of the Shit's Creek crew, just not in their same characters, unfortunately. Can, can we talk about the show last night? I, as yeah. a, a, as a matter of habit, studiously avoid any kind of TV award yeah. show. Uh, I Occasionally, I'm forced to watch it. But, you know, there was good sports on last night instead. So how was this thing in terms of having to actually park your butt on a couch and watch it? Okay, so I'm going to say um, it was a good attempt. There were no technical glitches uh, except for one fire, the fire thing with Jennifer Aniston. I don't know if you saw, but they actually did light a fire. And anyway, long story short, uh, there was a lot of awkward segments. Um, you know, they're never not awkward. They're always awkward. It's terrible jokes. Like, I don't know who writes these jokes, but, you know, the show, show could be way quicker if you just got rid of all these dumb segments because they're just, you know, they kind of take up too much time. But on the whole... Um, considering the situation they were in and considering how quickly they had to turn it around, I think it was pretty good. And Jimmy Kimmel, actually, his jokes were pretty great. His monologue was good. Um, even though all the jokes were COVID-related, you know, kind of, you know, the same stuff we've heard a million times. But um, overall, I'd give it like, a you know, a nice decent B. I'd give it a B, maybe a B minus. Uh, it, it was not bad. And there were some very sweet moments. But if you didn't watch Schitt's Creek or didn't like Schitt's Creek, 
then I'm sorry for you because I must have been very, very boring. At least the, fir- <laughs> at least the first hour. <laughs> You'd be like, who is this? What is this? You know? <laughs> what do you? Oh, I'll, oh, I'll just have to tune into that. Oh no, that show's over. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> All right, Chris. but it's on Netflix in the U.S., so you know Americans are able to uh, watch this again. So. Yeah, it was a great night for Canada, any way you slice it, uh, and and great to see you know comedy legends like uh, Levy and Absolutely. Catherine O'Hara uh, yeah. pick up those awards. Chris Janselowitz from GlobalNews.ca. Always great to have you on the program, Chris. Take care of Thank yourself. You, Thank you. You too. I want to quickly mention this. I haven't had a chance to talk about this. Can we talk about Mountain Equipment Co-op real briefly? I want to talk about MEC. Um, this has just popped up here. Uh, Susan Krasinski-Robertson, who is the retail reporter at The Globe, is now reporting that a group of co-op members from the Mountain Equipment Co-op, actually members of the co-op, have raised now $50,000 in a legal fund to try uh, and get a campaign going to stop the sale of MEC to a U.S. private equity firm. This came out last week that uh, Mountain Equipment Co-op, or MEC, if you want... MEC, I, Mecca, we used to call it in BC when I lived out in Vancouver. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's basically sold to this private equity firm. And although the store still exists, there's a concern that, you know, that's it, that the thing is over, that it's going to get stripped for parts and forget it, MEC is done. And so these members are saying, well, look, I don't, we don't think that this whole deal, A, is a good idea, and B, there are rules that govern co-ops and the sale of co-ops, and we're not sure that all the rules were followed. And all of it is kind of wrapped up in this, you know, kind of rose-colored glasses nostalgia for what Mountain Equipment Co-op was and has been to so many people. If you're a member, like, I, you know, I've been a member for so long that I still have the laminated piece of cardboard. That is still my first edition uh, membership card, and it's beaten up and battered. And, uh, you know, it's it's been part of my wallet and, you know, just molded into it, you know, for decades. You know, going to Mountain Equipment Co-op was, you know, a, a sense of excitement, and you'd go and you'd get all the, you know, ridiculous gear and, you know, you'd head off into the great outdoors. And it wasn't just a store, but it was also an identity you had. And that, you know, that feeling like, oh, you know, I'm I'm part of this. And, but if you think about it, in the last five to ten years, Mountain Equipment Co-op hasn't been that for a while. It hasn't. You know, it's changed. And, you know, there's complaints that the board that is in charge now that has decided to sell it, that they're responsible for those changes. But nevertheless, we have all changed the way we shopped. We shop online now. You know, I, I, I work here in Don Mills, not too far from here to a Mountain Equipment co-op store. I never go. You know why? Because it's over there and uh, there's other places. It's not the same. And so I feel for these MEC members who want to stop this and they want to save the Mountain Equipment Co-op. But I think it's been gone for a while already. If we're actually true to ourselves and admit it. The MEC's been gone for a while. Forget about it. it. Forget about it. It's not coming back. Thank you, Doug. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch the Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.